Hello and welcome to the Doing Epic Stuff podcast featuring your host, Mike Drohan. Together we'll explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Can you imagine a job where no matter how good you are at it, you can still get fired at any given moment? Pretty stressful, right? I could do a great job. I could come in and do a, a terrific job on a, on a team and get them in wonderful physical shape. But if for some reason the performances don't ensue and there's no, you know, because it's a win-loss outcome-based um, um, environment, you know, you, you might still lose your job. So there's not, there's not always that job security with what I do because, you know, at the elite level, you've got to win. Bottom line is you've got to win or people lose their jobs. It's as simple as that. Russell Jarrett has managed to sustain a career as an elite physical performance slash strength and conditioning coach for over 30 years. That's a lot of early starts and burpees. Now a key player behind the players, his interest was originally piqued by an inspiring physical education teacher. Russell has now worked with some of Australia's most elite sporting organisations, including the Australian Football League, Australian Institute of Sport, Cricket Australia, Women's National Basketball League, Australian Basketball League, and elite-level golf and tennis, as well as literally thousands of individual and group training sessions. Things are going pretty well for our protagonists when, out of nowhere, the national personal training industry is literally scuttled overnight. But lockdown two really punched a hole in us because when we got lockdown a second time, um, it was probably a bit longer, actually, and we'd done all of those things to to remain relevant and to remain front of mind, and we had no more tricks up our sleeve. Which had mindset and methods to navigate major change in our lives, the power of the side hustle, how our physical exercise needs have to adapt to complement our age, and there's even a little bit of time to throw a couple of questions at Russell provided by Doing Epic Stuff listeners. Epic. By the way, if you dig the episode, I'd greatly appreciate a review in your preferred podcast listening platform. The more awareness we create together, the closer we move towards a world where everyone has the opportunity to pursue their epic stuff. We are rolling. Uh, Russell, Jared, thank you so much for taking the time today to come and speak with me on the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. How are you doing? Going well, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. It's, uh, you know, it's going to be good. I'm, in, I'm excited to be a part of it. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Look, it's, uh, we get interesting people from all walks of life on this program, which is another way of saying I just do whatever I want and don't want to con- con- refine it or confine it too much to a niche. So it's, it's cool for me to just have basically anyone I find interesting. And I think, you know, you having had a lifetime of experience in, uh, in and around sport, as a coach at elite levels, at, at probably training casual people as well, the whole kind of gamut of a professional fitness industry coach. Uh, I'm someone who's been in and around sports most of my life and loved lots of different disciplines. So, you know, a great opportunity for me to sort of pick the brains of someone who has had such a such a huge amount of experience. And I think yeah, I think that people will listen to this and kind of really embrace having a bit of an insight from someone who is coached, especially people, you know, at that at that highest level, you know, and just kind of trying to pick apart a little bit what the difference might be between the mindset of the elite athlete and how you coach them versus the mindset of the the father with two kids who just wants to make sure he can kick the footy each week and keep up with his 15-year-old boys so they don't run the pants off him. There's <laughs> probably two very different approaches there, which I'm personally very interested in. Um, so I think where we'll start, uh, though, Russell. Look, you know, we're in a we're in a funny sort of time. I mean, the world's always pretty bloody strange as it is, but particularly strange at the moment with pandemic stuff going on. And we live in a country, in in particular, in a state. We're both based in Victoria, Australia, where there's been some pretty hefty lockdowns. Um, so I'm going to, I want to talk to you a little bit about how that's affected your business and how you're running your business. But before we go into that, can you maybe just tell me a little bit about how, or maybe even the, if you can remember it, the moment where you decided, hey, I love sports. I'm going to shift from just mucking around and playing them to being a dude 
who cultivates talents in sports and becomes a coach? When, when did that shift happen? Yeah, okay. So um, I reckon I can't pin it down to an exact uh, moment, but it was, it was kind of... It was kind of through my uh, final years of high school, I started to get interested in the, I guess, the science behind physical performance and training. So I was, I was all, always into sport and exercise and competition myself. And I was good at a number of sports, but I was never brilliant at any of them. And so I was never going to become an elite sports person in any field, you know, myself. I figured that out you know, through my teenage years, I was good, but I wasn't good enough to be elite or become professional in anything. But I I was still interested in the process of exercise and training and physical performance. Now, um, through my final year at at high school, my my PE teacher, um, I kind of had a a strong um, relationship in terms of understanding science with him. and, And I asked him about, you know, how did he get started? What did he do? So he kind of he guided me towards doing a, a physical education degree because, um, you know, he was he was someone that that kind of I felt like I identified with him pretty well, and he looked like he had a you know pretty interesting lifestyle. He worked in, as a teacher, but he also coached on the side. So it was kind of his influence that got me interested in doing a degree. But through the course of that degree, I became less interested in teaching and more interested in physical performance and physical preparation and strength and conditioning. So I got into that degree, but then I kind of changed my tact again. And that's, that's when it was, it was at the end of that degree. And then once I finished and started looking for work and opportunities that I started to go down very much down the path of, right, I want to be a, I want to be a strength and conditioning coach. I want to be a physical performance coach. And that's where it started. And it's, it's remained there for the last 30 years. So that's, that's almost, I guess, there's so many facets of the strength and fitness and, and physical performance, you know, I guess, topic. It's, it's so, there's so much to it. You kind of found an element of it that personally kind of interested you, which was this strength and conditioning. And really, I guess, looking at it as more, more I guess, from a bigger view, this is about human performance, right? That how, what, what the body can do if given the right conditions and performing the right way, where can we take the human output to? What can it actually achieve? The science of that. Is that kind of right? Yeah, that was, that was the thing that fascinated me. So I, I got really interested in, righto, uh, if, if I understand how the body can be manipulated and trained and improved and strengthened, if I can understand that really well, and if I can um, I guess carve out a, a role for myself. Then I can be I can be an advantage to anyone almost in any sport because you know getting stronger the the principle the same principles apply. So it doesn't matter whether you're trying to get stronger to play basketball or stronger to play uh, football or soccer. It doesn't matter. You know you you get strong in the same fashion. There might be a few little you know tweaks in each sport, but essentially. Getting strong is getting strong. And the same with improving your aerobic capacity or your anaerobic capacity or anything like that. So Mm. I kind of figured, you know, and I wasn't the first to do this, but I just got interested in understanding, well, if I can work with people, whether they be, um, you know, uh, amateur athlete, semi-professional or professional, if I can help them to improve their physical abilities then I can help them become more successful in their sport. And they're going to, they're going to need my assistance in order to do that. So there's, there's a career path for me there. Um, And that's, that's how it came to be. So back in those days, yes, there were strength and conditioning coaches. They might've been called um, physical, uh, physical education coaches or fitness coaches or something a little different, but the term strength and conditioning coach has been well known and understood and accepted for 25, 30 years. And, and now we probably almost call ourselves sometimes physical performance coaches because that gives their, that gives people a, perhaps a, a more broader understanding of what it is that we do. We improve physical performance. So I take a person and, and I analyse what their sport requires of them. I analyse what their body can and cannot do at this point in time. And then it's my job to say, well, you need to be stronger, you need to be faster, or you need to be aerobically stronger, or you need to have more flexibility or whatever it is. So mm. 
I understand the sport, I understand the athlete, and then I find the I I implement the best the best methods I can to to bridge that gap between where they are and where they need to be. Yeah, I like that physical performance term almost better as a descriptor because the strength and conditioning is almost just the the how, right? Yep. But the but but what you want to achieve, that what the need is, is I need to hit my peak performance. And the context of that is going to change, right? It could be very different for someone who is in uh, professional uh, martial art of some type versus someone who's a rugby player. I'm guessing their idea of peak performance, the rugby player needs to be just a brick shithouse who can move quickly. But I suppose still be very agile. Whereas if you put too much weight and too much bulk on someone training in, say, Muay Thai, you put them in a weight division where they're up against fucking giants and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you might get this diminishing rate of return where you're doing battle with with monsters. Yep, absolutely. Like you've you've nailed it, Mike, absolutely. So, and going back to the example that you you spoke of earlier when, when you started the podcast, you know, for that father of two who just wants to kick his kick the footy around with his kids and be able to do that and not pull up super sore for the next three days, you know, physical performance for him is literally that. You know, I just want to go outside. I want to play with my teenage kids. I want to kick the footy. I want to, ha- I want to have a few games of tennis or play a round of golf, and I want to be able to do it, enjoy it, and then not be super sore for the next three or four days, you know, because I've done something that my body's not really – uh, in shape to do. And so that's his definition of physical performance. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then you co- you contrast that with, um, you know, with an elite rugby player, as you say, or, or, or kickboxer or football player, and they need to be the best in the world or they need to be the best in their weight class or whatever it is. So it's just, you know, it's just that their goals are different. The level, the levels that they train at are different. Um, their background of training will be different and the, the workloads and the intensities and the volumes that you can throw at them will obviously be different. But nonetheless, both, both aspects of that population simply want improved physical performance or they want to reach, as you said, peak, uh, peak physical performance. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? That there's so many different avenues to get to that outcome and so many different paths depending on who you are or what you want to achieve. Um, I was going to ask you a question about had, like a, had, you, had you had a mentor or someone to sort of lead you in the strength and conditioning performance realm and clearly you had, you'd been sort of influenced by this PE teacher and gone, hang on, that's something I kind of, I, I like the, how this, the cut of this guy's jib and what he's talking about, I'll kind of pursue that. You've gone down the strength and conditioning path and it's obviously turned out to be a pretty good gamble because you've had like a 30-odd year career in it. What, what keeps it still interesting for you, Russell? Well, it's, it's just always changing too. I mean, you know, um, the, I guess there's, a, there's a, a lot of underlying key principles that still apply, um, but there is still continued um, research and science and development that leads us to figure out whether or not we can do things in a better fashion and in a better way. And, and, and I guess, to be honest, it's a, it's a terrific lifestyle, but mm. it's a lifestyle that you have to be, um, you have to be prepared to sacrifice a few things. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not a lifestyle that really allows you to um, sleep in a great deal. You know, there's a lot of early mornings. Um, uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a fair bit of travel. There's a fair bit of weekend work. And it, it does impact on, on your family. So you've got to be prepared to be able to manage all of those things at the same time and be prepared to sacrifice a, a few things. It's not like an office job, right? You're not punching a ticket and, and going, oh, day's done at 5 p.m. You kind of have to work around schedules as opposed to, the, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, but I, I don't mind that. I, I think, you know, and it's, it's got a lot of outdoor elements to it as well. Like I, I rarely sit in an office. I'm, I'm outdoors a lot. If I'm indoors, I'm moving around a, a training venue, whether it be my gym or somewhere else. I just I don't sit down very much. I'm constantly moving. Um, I'm constantly having you know interesting, challenging conversations with people, figuring out how to make the the outcome um, happen. So I like that lifestyle. It's got energy. It's got it's got action. It's got you know it's got challenges. It's there's always something different going on, and so that's probably why I'm still in it. Mm. Um, but there's also, 
you know, the downside to what I do is it's a performance-based job. So if you're working in a professional organisation, if you're an SNC coach, you know, at AFL level or with Cricket Australia or with the NRL or with any of those professional organisations, that's all great. But there's a there's a lot riding on every outcome, on every game, on every on every element of performance. So, you know, there's there's going to be opportunities or, or or times where there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot riding on outcomes. There's a lot that's out of your control. As I've said to people before, I could do a great job. I could come in and do a, a terrific job on a, on a team and get them in wonderful physical shape. But if for some reason the performances don't ensue and there's no, you know, because it's a win-loss outcome-based um, um, environment, you know, you, you might still lose your job. So there's not, there's not always that job security with what I do because, you know, at the elite level, you've got to win. Bottom line is you've got to win or people lose their jobs. It's as simple as that. That's pretty cutthroat. It sounds a bit like there's a bit of a parallel going there on the, with the professional marketing industry in that, you know, you're really only as good as your last campaign and yep. there's a lot riding on it and you can do everything correct. But if the conditions aren't right, for whatever reason, there can be macro conditions outside of your control. It will mean that you've done all the right things and a campaign's fallen flat on its ass. And then, you know, regardless of how much effort you put into it, you really are not going to come out of that well. You are, it's performance-based. It's do or die every time. That's pretty exhausting. It's a pretty exhausting way to make a living long-term, I I would say. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And so you've got to be prepared for that battle. You know, you've got to be, uh, I I guess you've got to be resilient enough to to, um, be in those environments and, and kind of always have that, um, you've got to remember that you know you, all you can do is your best job. You, you can you can only tick tick all of the boxes that you can um, take all of the the right levels of of uh, application and put all the effort and energy in that you possibly can. And then the rest of it is in in the lap of the sporting gods. Um, and when I was young, I, I lost a job um, early on in my career, and that really. Um, that really taught me some lessons, but also it gave me uh, a bit of a thicker skin, I guess. I, I was quite naive and, and a little bit, um, a, a little bit uh, green. You know, I thought that provided I do my job well and I look after my athletes, I should be fine. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. That didn't work out. You know, I was at, I was at a club for three years. I did, a, I did a good job. I got them in good shape. I minimized the injuries. I did everything I needed to do, but I still lost my job. Mm. And so coming off the back of that, I was, yeah, you, you kind of think, well, is this really what I want to do? Is this, there's not a lot of job satisfaction or security here. So, but, you know, you pick yourself up and you go again. But I also figured out, Mike, at that point that I, I'm always going to have something on the side. So I always had a role in elite athlete S&C but I also always had just that little safety net and that other income coming along from other environments to act as a, like I said, as a safety net just in case. Ah, that's very smart. So you've kind of, you've always had a couple of streams of, of revenue in that way. And the, the elite part, maybe the part where you get arguably the greatest job satisfaction when that team or that individual gets up there and wins that at the highest level of competition, that's almost like you're, you know, your real, your passion client, right? You love that stuff. But the bread and butter sort of everyday client, the more amateur um, sporting enthusiasts and, and health enthusiasts, they're the guys who are going to pay the bills and you kind of got to have both. And you've managed to do juggle those over a very long period. Yep, that's exactly what that's exactly what I've done. And as I said, that's what I started to do. After I, after I lost my job at that, at that organization early on in my career, um, yeah, I kind of sat back and said, well, I still want to do this, but clearly I need to be a little bit clever and smart here. So I'll develop something on the side, as you've just said, that's always been there in some way, shape or form, whether it be uh, whether it be instructor education or workshops or running a centre or, or having my own studio. I've always had something there um, which I know is going to be guaranteed. And then I've had my other... Um, my other roles in elite sport, whether it be with AFL clubs or um, Cricket Australia or with uh, um, WNBL or anything like that, you know, those roles have been there because they challenge me 
Um, they allow me to explore, you know, really all of my knowledge and all of my skills to the highest level. But if something doesn't go right or if something doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. Um, mm. And so, yeah, that's, that's been my strategy. That's the reason I think I've managed to stay in it for 30 years because, you know, um, like I said, if you work at the elite level, you've got to be all in, but you've also got to understand that your destiny is, is largely out of your control. You've got to be comfortable with that. If you're not comfortable with that, don't do it because it'll, it'll only end in hurt. That feels a lot like that's the reality that an elite athlete has to accept about their own career, right? Which is if you get into the highest level of footy, it could be over in the next match. You just, you, mm-hmm. there is a chance that could happen with a bad injury or a bad tackle, a knee blows out and you're never the same again. And I yep. guess that's the most extreme version of, of what you're talking about. You to a degree have to consider the same thing. You might, there might be a disastrous elite level campaign that just doesn't go well for a footy team and that then rubs off on you in some way because everyone's looking for someone to blame right yes yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be- <laughs> yeah. no well it's it, it's true i mean um you know you've even even something as simple as what if what if an afl club all right so here's an example collingwood football club last year or this year went through a reasonably uh, unsuccessful season um they had some turmoil on and off the field um, Nathan Buckley, the head coach, resigned. Um, Robert Harvey as, came in as caretaker coach. Then they appointed, then they appointed their next uh, uh, head coach in Craig McRae. Well, I can also tell you that there's been movement. It's this doesn't happen in the media, but I I know that there's been movement in the background with a lot of the physical preparation staff. Some have gone because the head coach comes in and he goes, "Well, I need my people. I need my." I want this person to run my program, not the people that are there. No disrespect, but I don't know you. I haven't worked with you. Now, here's a guy that's coaching, you know, he's, he's coaching arguably the, the, what, the biggest uh, football club in the country, right? So he's brought in Justin Lepich as his, as his assistant. He's brought in Brendan Bolton um, as his other assistant. He's probably made some changes in his physical preparation. So he comes in. And all of those people that were in those chairs, they're out now. Now, they could, they could have been doing and probably were doing wonderful work, but it doesn't matter. Mm. The head coach has the power to dictate who sits in what chairs because he's ultimately responsible for performance and winning. So he wants to know that, that the people that are with him and working with him, he can, he knows them, he can trust them, he knows their work. You know what I mean? Yeah, That's, it's rare that the the CEO or the CMO would come on board the new CEO or CMO without a very strong opinion about the marketing agency they want to work with, or the you know, and just and just clean clean the clean the screen and bring in a whole new team. And this sounds exactly the same. <laughs> exactly the same. Exactly the same. And so yeah, so if you work in those environments, it's it's awesome. Not saying it's not great. It is, but you just need to be you just need to be prepared for, I guess, upheaval that's that's out of your control. You just got to be ready for that and do just do the best job you can. Who have you got a elite sporting moment or or role that you've had that kind of stood out for you as the as one that you were really really like just excited about or something, an experience or a moment that you were like, wow, man, like that, that was something I'm going to keep with me forever. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Look, I, I was lucky in the, in the, in the role that I had, I, I spent six years on the road with the Australian women's cricket team. And I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a cricket um, tragic. I've played a lot of cricket. Um, my kids have all played cricket. We all love the sport. You know, we, we watch it all summer long. So we love the sport. And then when I, when I got that role, uh, which, which happened by complete, complete accident. It was as weird. It's a weird one, but I got that role and, uh, and, and through the next six years, I traveled to, um, India, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, New Zealand, England, um, all around Australia, all over the place. Um, and we, and in that, in that time, uh, with the team, I was lucky to win three World Cups and awesome. and two two Ashes series. And yeah, I'll never forget that. That's that's 
amazing stuff. To see that happen and be a part of that, yeah, there's some real highlights in there I'll never forget. So cool because you would have been doing that at a time when women's sport just in general is is really making massive inroads to popularity and awareness and 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 yeah, being riding that wave as well at the same time would have just been incredible but to be the guy involved in a sport that you actually love as well like that's yeah that's hard to top isn't it <laughs> yeah mate cool. I, I mean you know i i started with that team in 2009 and you know we might have, i can remember playing against england right so england were out here in our summer and australia was playing england and we were playing it i don't know maybe uh, the Junction Oval in Melbourne, and there would have been 150 people watching the game, right? Australia versus England, 150 people. And that was in 2009, 2010. Now, I took my three boys and my wife to the uh, World Cup uh, at the MCG in March 2020. So 10 years later, mm-hmm. that's not long. 10 years is not long. And we sat and we watched the Australian women beat India convincingly at a, in front of a crowd of 90,000 people. Oh, my God. That is, that is meteoric change. Like- so in, in 10 years, I witnessed the same, and the same, many of the same people were playing, Alyssa Healy, Elise Perry, Meg Lanning. They were all there when I was there in 2009. Meg came a little bit later. But, yes, I, I saw those girls playing in crowds of 150 people and I saw them win the World Cup in, in front of 90,000 people at the MCG in a space of 10 years. Hasn't it just been incredible? Like, I don't know. Just unprecedented change is basically what we're living in, especially this last decade. It just, it just seems to be that's just how things are. Uh, it is. I went to a World Cup with the girls in 2012. I think it was, and the prize money for the men's team, if you were the winning team, you won $600,000, right? The team won $600,000. Mm-hmm. Not a lot in not a lot of money uh, when no, you split when you it can, against the whole for the whole team like <laughs> no no but but all of those all of those guys had their own individual contracts, right? Sure. But but the 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 ICC awarded the winning team $600,000. How much do you think they awarded the winning women's team at the same tournament? I'm going to be, I, I would not be surprised if it was somewhere like a factor of, you know, $60,000, $80,000, something crazy like that. It was $60,000. Oh God, I was bang on. <laughs> so you're spot on the money. So the women's prize money was, was a 10th of what the men's prize money was now. Now there's reasons for that. Like they 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 couldn't they couldn't really um, dictate uh, uh, parity because the viewing rights are different and TV rights are different and sure. and seating you know all of all of those things have to be taken into account. But but I mean I don't know I don't know what the gate takings would have been at the MCG right when there was ninety thousand people. But let's just I don't know like that that gate would have been millions of dollars i don't know what the prize money was i don't know what the prize money was but it would have been a lot more than sixty thousand dollars yeah you'd you'd bloody hope so because that 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 was really the only argument that could be had wasn't it was which was if women's sport wasn't bringing in the viewers Hmm. we could we couldn't it's there's a fair argument to say if the people aren't watching the sport the money comes from marketing the advertisers don't spend how can we give the same prize money i understood that if you if you ramp up the crowd to the same levels, the sponsors want to spend as much money. The argument kind of goes away. So I would be very well, surprised. Well, that's right. Like I don't know. I don't know now. You know, but I I don't know what 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 players are earning and making. But when I first started in two thousand and nine, I reckon there was about two players in the team, or maybe three at most, that were making their a living from playing cricket. Right, maybe two or three. Now, now, if you get a Cricket Australia contract as a female, um, well, you don't need another job. Like yeah. you are, you are, you are truly a professional sports person, and they are paying for you to train and play and live and travel as a professional cricketer. Mm. It's a, it's become a viable career. Absolutely. 
Mm. Absolutely. A, a, a completely viable career. Mm. How excellent. Very cool. I think everything's moving in, in the right direction in that regard. So that, yeah, I think that's, we can all agree that's a pretty good thing. Um, so neck deep in a pandemic, you run a business, which is largely a face-to-face type scenario, you know, training happens best. And most of it has always happened in person, whether it's boot camp or whatever is going on, that, that is just one of the critical elements of training people that gets taken away pretty much overnight in a lot of scenarios. How, how much has your business been impacted by, by this whole situation? Uh, Russell? Yeah. Yeah. Look, it like, like a lot of other gyms and fitness based uh, businesses in Australia and around the world, you know, it, the, the, the impact has been significant, very significant, but I, I think, I think now it's at a point where um, businesses are starting to find a way out or, or they already have found way out. And I think now it's a case of, well, um, how quickly are you, are you going to be able to recover and regain the lost ground? So every business has lost ground. Some businesses have decided that they're not going to try and, and fight that fight and recover. We've decided that we certainly are. Um, yeah, look, it's been, a, it's been a case of trying to minimise the damage, I think, Mike. That's what we've tried to do. We knew there was going to be damage. It, that, that was inevitable. I mean, you can't... You can't not for damage when you literally have your doors closed at a moment's notice, which is what happened to everyone. So for us, it was about, okay, what can we control? I know this is terribly boring um, uh, sort of cliche stuff, but it's, it, it's true. We literally had to think, what can we control? What can't we control? What can we do that's productive and proactive and generate some form of income? Um, where will we where will we not get, get income from? Well, let's just let that go for the moment. Let's not even mm-hmm. try and fight that fight because it's almost it's almost a waste of time and energy and and it does nothing for your mental space either. Um, so you know, early on, Mike, we did things like we we rebranded, we changed all of our branding, all of our colorways, uh, all of our fonts the look, the feel, the energy. We painted the whole building internally, which took my wife and I six weeks every day, day in, day out. This, we is, painted this is a everything. gym, is it, Russell? Yeah, yeah, this hmm. was our gym, yeah. So we painted the whole place. We ripped out everything that we wanted to change. We, we got rid of certain pieces of equipment. We bought new stuff. Um, we, you know, we, we changed the way we communicated with people. Yeah, we did some online stuff, sure, um, but that was that was not so much about delivering income. That was just more about re- staying relevant to our members. That's what mm-hmm. it was. It was it was reminding our our members that we had a business and that we'll come back one day, um, and that's all it was. Uh, so we we did little things like that, and then that got us through lockdown one, um, lockdown two was different and I'm going back, uh, you know, 20 odd months here, lockdown two, we'd, we'd done all that. Um, we'd reopened. Uh, our members had largely come back and we were like, well, that wasn't so bad. You know, mm. we, we got through pretty well, but lockdown two really punched a hole in us because when we got locked down a second time, um, it was probably a bit longer actually. And we'd done all of those things to to remain relevant and to remain front of mind, and we had no more tricks up our sleeve. <laughs> um, so, so that was harder. Lockdown two was definitely harder than lockdown one. And then from then on, it's just been a case of um, when we're trading, let's 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 do as much as we can. Let's be as as um, engaging as possible. Let's be as energetic as we can. Let's be as valuable as we can to our members. And and let's 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 stay um, let's stay as a, as almost a, as a beacon of energy and excitement for them, so that so that when they're they're not in lockdown, they can come back to us. They want to come back to us quickly, and that's that's been our strategy over the last twenty months. And we're not we're not back to where we were pre pandemic levels, but we're climbing back. We're climbing back. That's really good to hear. I think it's you know it would have been really easy to roll over uh by by uh phase two of lockdown because it was so disappointing to so many people yeah. 
and it was really like the there's not going to be a quick end to this sort of viewpoint that that you know really wasn't really that much of an issue a lockdown one it was like oh we've been through it lockdown two was like oh crap this is this is a real problem so you know i think you guys were very smart to spend as much time as you could working on the business not in it when you could and Mm -hmm. there's absolutely great appetite to return to that in-person experience there's no way that online fitness can totally replace the 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 energy and the experience of being in a place where you're doing physical pursuits with other people around you, right? I think that it's going to swallow a big chunk of the market, but also I think a big chunk of that market were people who probably weren't exercising regularly anyway. So that's growing out the home exercising part. People who were uncomfortable going to gyms, you know, are definitely going to be part of the the online app uh, home gym experience type thing. But correct. Yeah, I think you guys have done very well to weather the storm. I think we're hopefully on the other side of it. I think you've, um, I could see that you'd started doing a few, uh, dabbling with some online courses and doing some different things there, which is also cool too, to to sort of just dip your toe in the water and test those things out. Is that something you'll continue to explore, Russell, and see if you can get a bit of traction with different online courses and things like that? Yeah, I think I think there's a uh, a market there that's that's going to grow uh, a lot more than it has because it's it's been forced to in, to some degree, um, and it's like you know it's like that it's like that job that you put off that you know you can do it or you know that you need to do it but you put it off you put it off you put it off it's like you know when you, you walk out in your garage or your back shed and it hasn't been cleaned for five years and you know it needs to be done but you just keep putting it off and then once you finally decide to get it you know roll the sleeves up and get stuck in you're like i wish i had done this earlier like this (laughs) you know this and it's the same with the online thing like i always knew that i had something that i could offer people online because you can't you can't lose or you can't waste 30 years of intellectual property you've got to i think you've got to you know and that's the way i see it i've got so much information and content and knowledge that i don't want that to be lost that's got to be I've got to give that over to others so they can do with with what with it whatever they want and improve upon it and build upon it because that's what I did. You know, I I literally I I I used to pick the brains of all of the guys and girls that went before me that had 15, 20, 30 years of experience and I used to say to them, "Okay, so how did you do that? And why did you do that? And what kind, what kind of outcome did that give you?" But they they couldn't put it online. So I used to have to go and find these people and have conversations with them. Hmm. Now, 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 right at the end of, cause I'm getting towards the end of my career. Um, I can still do this for a while, but I'm certainly towards the end of it. I don't have to have a, a, a long and lengthy conversation with every person to give them the benefit of my 30 years. I can take that, put it online and hundreds of people can access it without hmm. a conversation because yeah. we've got the tools now. We've got the tools, haven't we? We certainly do. I think it's mainly just a matter of of allocating the time to really get across them and do a bit of trial and testing and and putting things out there, right? Not spending too much time being uh, getting too bogged down in strategy, just testing and learn, testing and learn, testing and learn sort of thing, which, you know, as you said, you've got so much uh, information and experience to share. I think it would be an absolute shame to not um, continue to share that. And and the online world provides that avenue. The other thing I think you, well, I think everything on the web's moving towards communities. People are embracing web communities. And again, the, the sports uh, exercise, elite, even elite sports, all of that stuff, all of that world, that there's a really strong community there that which has often been quite disparate in ways like it lives over here you've got these people doing this there's this niche of that and they they probably don't uh, liaise with each other that often there's the really good opportunity to bring those those kind of communities together online as well which i think what that needs is kind of thought leaders and people who know what the fuck they're doing and that's where you come in because otherwise <laughs> yeah. as you've seen with a quick skim of youtube you could probably bust your arms off doing some of the shit they're trying to tell you how you do with with some kid who's done half a month of a personal training course yeah 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 that's true <laughs> i mean you crazy can... stuff out there <laughs> there's some crazy stuff out there isn't there i know i know and and <laughs> And there's, you know, there's a part of me too that 
I've got to catch myself because um, I am a bit of a purist. I, I do believe in, I, I do believe that people um, who provide content information and advice or guidance or whatever you want to call it, I, I believe those people should be properly qualified, properly educated and properly experienced in order to be allowed to do that. Like, you know, just because you drive a car, it doesn't mean that you should be a driving instructor because you might be a shit driver, right? <laughs> so what gives – I've been driving a car for 30 years, right? I, I, but, but, I'm, but I've probably got – I know I've got um, some bad habits. Like I, I occasionally I'll put one hand on the wheel or I, or I, might, um, I might not spend enough time checking my mirrors or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I might indicate too early or too late. So I drive a car, but am I a good driving instructor? No, I'm not because I'm not trained to instruct others in the skill of driving a car. Mm. Um, so that's that's my analogy. You know what I mean? Just because I drive a car doesn't mean I should be a driving instructor because if I was to instruct a complete novice, I'd probably turn them into a bad driver <laughs> and I could probably teach them unknowingly some habits that might get them in trouble. Yeah. You know, yeah, this, is, this is an interesting topic to explore because I think there's been such a meteoric rise in DIY uh, home equipment. And so people are like, anytime you go on Facebook, they're, they're spruiking a new thing, which is like, this is this thing will replace everything you can do at the gym sort of thing. Yeah. And look, some of these yeah. things are really good. I, I bought a, a chin-up bar for the door frame, which is, that idea has been around forever, right? The chin-up bar and the door frame. But this one actually mounts in a way that the more weight you put on it, the more it pushes out. So it's just a really, really secure chin-up bar, one which actually won't fall and brain you. But I think people are investing in these things. And do you feel like there's a risk that you can go straight into using this equipment and potentially pick up some pretty crazy habits if you don't have someone who knows what they're doing sort of spotting you or keeping an eye on your form and this sort of thing? Yeah, look, certainly. I mean, any anything that that you try and self-teach yourself is is going to have some some inherent um, holes in it because nothing's the same as, I guess, as you said before, that face-to-face, human-to-human interaction and, and feedback pathway. So, you know, People do their best, and 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 that's great. You don't want to you don't want to rain on their enthusiasm. You don't want to rain on their parade. If they're going to exercise at home, that's better than not exercising at all. But like you say, there's certain aspects of equipment that some people don't need or shouldn't really be trying to use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't advise elderly people to try and um, use things that perhaps they're not accustomed to lifting or using. Chuck them um, on the old kettlebells at 80 years of age yeah. might be a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, there's some there's some really good things that they can do that's that's going to give them uh, a good outcome, but it's a lot safer in the process. So there's there's not only the equipment, but there's also the instruction and there's the technique. Um, and then there's the whole there's the whole array of uh, online marketing, uh, which uh, which is this is the one that I kind of I, I don't think I can. I don't know anyone that can really uh, stop this, but but the array of marketing, and you would know better than me because this is your area, but they're just in fitness and, and exercise, there seems to be this approach around marketing which preys on people's low self-esteem and lack of uh, sort of their insecurities and their fear and their mm-hmm. phobia and their poor uh, body image. And, you know, it, it just preys on their, I guess, their mental state yeah. Uh, and and that's how it that's how they market to them. And that really that's the one that I get kind of frustrated with because it they, I believe a lot of that stuff is is preying on people's weaknesses and not really helping them or educating them. That is very much the case. I mean, there, there's a there's a whole movement, I guess, in society in general of making money quickly. You know, that's mm-hmm. always been there, but now there's 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 so many avenues to try and do that from drop shipping and, you know, selling other people's products online and all this sort of stuff. And I think the temptation to put someone who looks a certain way or has a certain attribute to feature that in, in your product, which is probably of questionable quality anyway, to get that Mm. click from someone who doesn't really necessarily feel great about themselves, isn't going to know how to use the equipment or really just shouldn't be spending their money on something that you're selling. 
unfortunately for a significant portion of society that temptation is too great to just to just exploit rather than yeah. uh really want to educate or really help i think that's always going to be there i think it's we're in the wild west era of internet marketing still so facebook yeah. and these corporate media it's not social media it's corporate media there is no real restraints on those guys and until things start to get looked at more carefully they're more worried about getting sued for for by putting on things like hate speech than they are about how they're marketing gym equipment so i think the onus ends up being on the individual and for us to look at things through a pair of glasses which says be a be a skeptic like on first touch most of the time you just need to be a skeptic when people are marketing to you because unless they're really trusted <laughs> the odds are that your actual well-being is probably pretty low down on the rungs of of what this thing is being marketed to you and it also mm. happens especially it's especially true with the cheaper end of the scale uh of these products like the cheaper they are the more sketchy the marketing strategies tend to be so i keep that in mind um but yeah it's not it's not a great thing we'll move into a couple of guest questions russell i've got sure. I picked a couple of brains from, from guys. Actually, I used to train Muay Thai with. So yep. this first one's from James Henley. James asks, what's the most common challenge your personal training clients have and how do you coach them through it? Now, I guess this is from like a mental viewpoint. What do are, what are people struggle with? Um, yeah, I'll leave that to you. Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of things, but, but probably the main one is... Um, PT clients, what I call general population that come to me for, you know, whether it be one-on-one or small group or something like that, these are people that they want to get fitter, they want to get lighter, leaner, healthier, better, they want to feel better, they want to reduce pain. Um, but their biggest problem is twofold. Generally, they are, they are unsure of the best way to go about that. So mm-hmm. because they're unsure of how much should I do, what should I do, how often should I do it, because they're unsure of the the prescription or the the recipe, they actually don't start. They, they're right. so you know they're, they're so kind of confused about. Well, I don't know if it's do I do three sessions a week? Do I do weights? Do I run? Do I bike? Should I do this? Should I do that? They're so confused and and um, uh, unsure that what I, they have what I call paralysis by analysis. So they're constantly thinking about, well, I'm not sure how to do it, so I better not try because I might hurt myself or I might do something wrong or I might do, you know, so they don't actually do anything or they don't do much. So it's they want direction. That's number one. People want direction. Mm. Um, They're happy to do the work, but they just want to know that they're doing the right work in the right way at the right amount at the right time, right? They want certainty, and that's what I give people. I give people confidence that, this is how we're going to do it. This is what you need to do. You don't need to do all this other stuff. Uh, you don't need to do too much work. You actually just need to do what I ask you to. If you do that well, the results will come. So people want certainty, right? Because I guess that the thought is, I don't want to sit here and do a thousand ab crunches if I'm not going to get abs because I hate mm. ab crunches. So the worst mm. thing for people, <laughs> they've got this instant block, which is, it's easier for me to not do anything than to waste my time doing something I'm not going to get the result I want. Yep, yep. Well, see, and and this is one of the this is one of the hard parts of what I do. What I try and what I'm trying selling, what I try and sell to people, or what I am selling to people is effort and hard work and sacrifice and discipline. That's not very marketable. You know, you know that <laughs> not, is not. It's not sexy. No, it's hard. No, it's not. <laughs> Imagine a marketing campaign that, that says, "Hey." Do you want to do something that hurts and is really uncomfortable and you have to do it every day? Well, here, try personal training, you know? <laughs> no one's right. going to buy that, right? I haven't but, seen too many ads like that lately, Russell. No, no, no. Well, you know, the funny thing is, Mike, if you look at most ads around fitness and training and exercise and body transformation, the key words that get used are easy, quick, fast, and cheap. Easy, quick, fast, and cheap right? Because no one wants the alternative, which is hard, painful, disciplined, and expensive. Mm. So, yeah. so yeah. anyway, that's the first thing. The second thing uh, to answer your question is people are looking for motivation is the word they use. 
but I would prefer the prefer they use um, the term commitment. Um, that's what I that's what I force people to to develop. I, I force people to develop the ability to commit to work, to training, to eating well, to being structured, to um, to sacrificing certain aspects of their day to 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 improve their wellness and their health. That's what I. That's how I. That's what I do. I teach people to do that, uh, so that it becomes more normal and less painful and less arduous and less less of a less of a pain to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So you're in, instilling like a value of commitment almost, mm. Mm. and and by that, by embracing it and going all in on that, it's no longer seen as such a negative And I hate this. I don't want to do this sort of thing. It's just. It's as simple as getting up in the morning. Yeah, it becomes that's part exactly of you it. and your routine. Yeah, you've mm. you've you've sum, you've summarised it perfectly for me. Thank you. So, yeah, I I teach people that a little bit of a commitment to a project on a consistent basis will make you feel a lot better, and it will change how you look, and it will change how you function, and it will change your health and. And your mental approach will be better and, and your self-esteem will improve. And all of these wonderful outcomes will happen, but you just have to stay with me long enough to see that uh, evolve. Um, I've got a lady who I've been working with for two weeks at the moment, only two weeks. She's very new and she's in her late 50s. She used to be a heavy smoker, a heavy smoker five years ago. And when I say heavy, uh, she said she would smoke 40 cigarettes a day, wow. right? A day. That's iron lung right? level. Yeah. <laughs> uh, plus she was a heavy drinker. Uh, she didn't exercise. And, um, and then she suffered uh, a trauma through the loss of her son in a car accident. Oh, so she's, she, she's had a lot of really uh, tough times. But, you know, she's kind of gotten through that and now she's quit smoking she doesn't drink and she started training with me and it's a very slow process. You know, her fitness is low, her strength is poor, her general health is poor, but she's made a decision and that's been the, the, the catalyst. She's just, she just rang me out of the blue and said, I need, I need to work with you. I need to train with you. Uh, and I want you to train me twice a week and I want you to tell me exactly what I need to do. So she just needs a coach. She just needs someone to strip it all away and say, this is what you need to do and this is how you're going to do it. And so I see her twice a week, but then I give her other things that she has to do away from me. And, and I said to her, I go, just, just keep turning up. You know, she, she's training with me. She's like, I feel so weak. I feel so unfit. I'm constantly out of breath. This is hard. This is uncomfortable. I said, I know that. I know that, but we've got to undo a bit of damage that you've done to your body. We've, we've got a lot of work to do here, but I said, just keep turning up. You know, don't worry about how much you're lifting or how hard you're working or don't worry about that. It'll come. I said, just keep turning up and before you know it, it'll get better. It's a, it's a, it sounds like a case of it. it gets, you almost have to convey to her, it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better sort of thing. That's exactly it. Which is and a, that's, a big and that's, pill to swallow, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're feeling yep. like shit anyway. Yep, but that's but that's it, Mike. And that's that's what I say to people. I go, don't you know? For the first for the first two to four weeks, this is not going to be very much fun. It's not going to be very nice. It's going to be quite unpleasant. But we've got to we've got to undo a lot of damage that you've that you've inflicted upon your own body, um, and that doesn't just go away. That's got to be, you've got to. You know, you've got to work through that. Someone's got to um, pay that. Someone's got to pay that bill. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. going to have to be you at some point. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> How's that woman's self-awareness to engage with you to, yeah. you know, that, that is an impressive human right there because it would have been yep. so easy to just go, you know what, like I'll just stick to the fags. I mean, kicking the cigarette addiction is in and of itself a huge one to get off 40 smokes a day. Yeah. And I can see why you're why you're all in on that project. That's that's an impressive person there. You're helping to to shape. I think. Well, you know, if she's if she's managed to do that, and and if she's managed to stop drinking, and she's managed to pick up the phone and ring me, um, I see I see that she's done a lot of the hard work already. Yeah, like that's yeah. that's the hard stuff. Yeah. You know, she's a she's in a she's a she's an addict to nicotine, and 
she was drinking a lot of alcohol. So she's made some really big uh, lifestyle choices, good on her, and now it's my job to just take her the rest of the way and it's my job to teach her over the next however long we work together. Uh, it's my job to teach her how to look after herself and her health for the rest of her life. Mm. That's excellent. Okay, I got one mm. more uh, guest question. Oh, yeah, guest question. So this is from Jack Shand, who's also a uh, martial arts practitioner. Does flow state actually exist and can you coach it? I've often wondered uh, that myself, Mike, mm. um, because I hear this term used a lot, this flow state term. So I'm going to answer the second part of the question first. Can it be taught? I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I think you'd probably want to chat to you'd probably want to chat to someone. I reckon in the in the space of um, psychology or um, almost psychiatry or some. I don't know. Like I, I don't know if it can be trained. What I do know is that if there is if there is such a thing, and and yes, certainly at times I find myself mentally a lot more attuned than at other times. I know that I know there is certainly an, a, a time where everyone can find themselves focused and um, uh, and really creating a, a mindset where their output is very high and their, 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 their ability to hone in on what's required is very is very strong. So I, I know that that exists because I've I felt that myself. Whether, whether you call it a flow state or not, I don't know. Um, but, yes, I, and I think that just comes with, um, with being able to, to, to sort of apply your, your concentration and your focus for long periods of time. And I, I know that is, a, that is a skill that I think everyone, everyone has, but is it, does everyone have it in the same levels? No. I mean, I've got, I've got three boys. Um, what? three kids, three sons, one of them's an, an adult, he's 21. The other two are 15 going on 16. Right. So, and, and those three kids are all very, very different. They're all very different. Um, one of them can focus for hours and hours and hours on a single task. One of them does, does not focus for hours and hours on, on a single task, but, but he's quite good at sport and, and in a, in a physical sense, I've watched him practice a skill every day for hours. So, you know, I think this, this flow state that we talk about is different for different people because everyone's wired differently. Mm -hmm. And I think that some people have this ability to focus on maybe more theoretical exercises, whereas others can focus on more physical uh, exercises for long periods of time. Gotcha. So, yeah, so I guess the, the short answer is, is it achievable? Yes, it is. Is it, is it teachable? Probably. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know the best way of going about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? I can probably, it's just from personal experience, I guess the things that I've noticed have changed significantly before and after I got into meditation, and that was probably about, seven years ago, I started to do meditation. Maybe, yeah, about that long. I used to find pre-meditation that I was definitely, or even I could say, even if I do something like meditate before going to do Muay Thai, my ability to focus on the pads and focus on the routine that I'm going through and just be in that moment is, is much better than if I don't meditate. So that's kind of one of the things, the, the few things I've ever kind of really been consciously aware of in terms of training and mind state is that being present is good and meditation seems to really help to get present. So I don't know if the two are related to flow state, but that's my two cents on that one. Yeah. No, well, I think, I think for everyone we need, we need to find, like I know that uh, personally I need to remove distraction. If I need to focus on a task, I can't really have uh, a TV on. I might be able to have a little bit of music on, but I can't have. I, I need a. I need a quiet room with maybe a little bit of music, maybe, but but I I, I can't have distractions or or anything else because I can't just singularly focus. Whereas one of my other kids, uh, you know, he he can he can be doing his maths homework or his physics homework, 
and he's got his book. He's sitting on the couch. The TV's on. There's five <laughs> conversations in the house, right? And literally nothing is bothering him. Oh, uh, wow. And he can, you know, oh, I can't do that. No, so I can't I, do that. You know, I can't do that. But he can. Mm, I think uh, I certainly think kids are wired a bit differently these days, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that would definitely be definitely be the case. Mm. I'll ask you a last question, uh, Russell, because I'm taking up, I'm going over the hour mark at this point. Just with regards to keeping up a good level of health and fitness, and as we get a little bit older, our how how that all changes. Like I'm 39 now. I'm still doing a lot of the pursuits. I mean, I'm doing some of the most extreme training I've probably ever done in some regards. I do Muay Thai now, which I've done for the last five years. But I'm conscious that at some point, I'm probably not going to want to get kicked and punched as much as I am now. <laughs> and also, it's probably at some point, it's going to get harder to train at the level that I need to, to be able to go and fight with dudes who are 16, 18 years of age, who have limitless gas tanks and just seem to be able to, to keep going no matter what. So I guess... What I'm interested to kind of know is how, how, do we, how do we accommodate this change of as we get older? How, do, how should we train differently? What should we look for? What do, what do we need to be conscious of? Yeah, so that's, that's an area that, that yes, I'm, I'm pretty um, focused on and interested in myself at the moment because it's something that I've got to physically and personally understand myself for my own body, but I've got to understand it better for my clients Mike, I think the answer to that is um, you've got to you've got to pay attention to your body and the messages that you're getting from your body um, because they will your body will give you messages and you can't you can't ignore that because uh, if you do you do it at your own peril. So I think as a general guide, as we age, uh, we need to train a little less than what we once used to. But I still believe that as we age, we can still train quite hard. So intensity, you know, intensity of effort and, and intensity changes, you know, relative to your, to your abilities as well. But intensity of effort is something that you can still deliver. So when you're, when you're doing your, your martial arts, you can still kick and punch as hard as you want to. That's not going to hurt you. Um, but you might not be doing it for as long as you once used to or as many times a week as you once used to, you know. So you, instead of doing five sessions a week, you might find that you can, um, you might have to drop back to three, you know, uh, and do a little bit less but still do it strong, still do it hard, still do it with intensity. So volume of exercise may need to come down, but I think as we age, we still need to keep the intensity of exercise up. Right, get that heart rate up. Yep, whatever that intensity looks like, right? So when I train, I still train, I still lift as heavy as I can. I still run as hard as I can. It's not as much as I used to lift and it's not as fast as I used to run, but I still push myself. Right, you push your new limit. Yes, yes, I push my new limit. My limit is not as high as it once was, but, but I don't, you know, I don't do what I would describe as sort of softer um, styles of exercise. I still train hard and I still work my body and I still push myself. Um, as we age, uh, we know that as a general rule, our strength will decline quite quickly. Um, as our hormone profile changes, we've got to maintain our strength. That's really important. So your quality of life, what you can do as a physical um, outlet, you know, the kind of exercise you can do and the the things that you can do that give you enjoyment and your hobbies and all of that stuff, all of those things will be maintained if you maintain your strength. Yes, you've got to look after your fitness, but your strength is what's going to leave you as you age. So I tell people all the time, whatever you do, stay strong. Keep lifting weights, stay strong, stay mobile. Keep doing your fitness work, get on the bike, go for a run, do all that stuff, whatever you want, but stay strong. That's really important. Yeah. That's interesting you say that, Russell. I had um, Dr. Yerth, who's from the Boulder Institute of Longevity uh, in Colorado, and she was basically saying the one thing you don't want to stop doing till the day you die is strength training. She's mm -hmm. like, as far as longevity elements go, like considering diet, considering everything, if you start to lose too much muscle, you will become frail and it's a one-way street. So yep. even at 80 years of age, 
be picking up those can of beans and doing a few curls just to keep the uh, keep the the muscle there because the muscle is like the it's like the engine room behind youth basically. Yep. And I think they've only in the last sort of decade really doubled down on that thinking, which is really interesting because it's it is kind of new school science. And uh, yeah, to hear you having the same opinions really really interesting as well. So I will be uh, pursuing more strength training. I think in the future. <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely. Strength strength training is. If there is such a thing as the fountain of youth, then strength training is about as close as what I've found. Yeah, um, cool. Cool. That's it's, it's critical stuff. You've got to keep muscle on your body, and you've got to keep your muscles strong. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of research that's, that's easy to find, and there's a lot of very smart people out there espousing the benefits of strength training. Um, and there is now a strong correlation between early age morbidity and lack of leg strength. Uh, once wow. upon a time, yeah, 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 yeah. Once upon a time, we used to, uh, uh, we used to equate uh, early morbidity with high cholesterol, high blood pressure, heart disease. And Always. yes, th- those, those, thing, those things still apply, but uh, there's a lot of research now into um, all-cause mo- morbidity and the correlation to lack of leg strength and lack of walking speed. So as you age, keep strong, keep your legs strong and walk fast. When you start to, when you start to dawdle and doddle and walk slowly, it's uh, it's not a good sign. Russell, we'll wrap it up there. That, that This has been an, Absolutely enjoyable session. I had like heaps more stuff to ask you. I can't believe I didn't get through that much stuff, but I guess, especially with this sort of topic, there's so much to lean into. There's so much depth in anything to do with performance training. Um, Did you have anything, any last bits to add, anything you wanted me to put in the show notes? Um, Where can people find out more about what Russell Jarrett's up to and, and engage with you as a coach potentially? Yeah, sure. So I've got um, I've got an Instagram account which uh, which uh, a few people contact me on, which, which is um, Russell underscore Jarrett one. But my website, everything's on my website. I, I do some podcasts like you. I do some online programs. Um, people can connect with me there, and that's just uh, russelljarrett.com.au. Very simple. So if they go to my website, they can track me down by email, phone call, whatever. Awesome. Thanks again, Russell. It has been truly epic. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. You can find all the latest happenings on the website, doingepicstuff.com or our Instagram, Instagram forward slash doingepicstuff. We out.